you're in an Uber going to a, a new city and you're looking for a great place to eat, you can say, hey, what's a good restaurant around here? And the, the cab driver will tell you probably something that every other tourist has been told, right? You'll get the exact same answer, probably out of a grab bag of three things. And you move on with your day and you don't even realize you're none the wiser. But the thing is, if you would have just asked the question a little differently, if you would have said, what's a great restaurant around here that no one knows about? You're eating at the greatest place. What's one that's not a tourist trap? What's one that you never tell people because you don't want it to get too crowded? The person's not going to say, oh, I can't tell you that. They're going to say, actually, it's Mama Yolanda's down the street. And all of a sudden now you've transformed, quite literally, you've transformed your experience because your question was better. If you ask a better question, you will have a better experience. Hey, I'm David Eliku, and this is The Knowledge, a podcast for anyone obsessed with learning more and living better. In every episode, I speak with successful people from a variety of backgrounds to unpack everything they've learned about navigating the world around us. This week, I'm speaking with Joe Ferraro, better known as America's podcasting coach. Joe has spent over 20 years as an educator teaching English, creative writing, and public speaking. He's also the host of the 1% Better podcast, which I have personally been listening to for a very long time. Joe's also the founder of damngoodconversations.com. And this was one of them. This is the podcast you should listen to to learn more about how to have incredible life-changing conversations, how to ask better, clearer, more incisive questions, and how to develop a curiosity that will open up worlds of new information. You can get the full show notes, the transcript, and my newsletter at theknowledge.io. You can find Joe on Twitter at Ferraro on Air, and you can check out damngoodconversations.com to learn more about the group coaching community that he's building there. If you love this episode, please engage with it, subscribe, share it with a friend, and most importantly, please don't forget to leave a review because it helps us tremendously to grow the show and reach other people just like you. Clearly, you have a very intentional design idea and aesthetic. I don't know how much of it you do and how much of it's a team, but just overall consistently just one of the best aesthetics I've seen. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm trying. I think it's uh, there's a lot of pieces to cobble together. I, I'm interested to know how do you find running your podcast actually? I'm one man team. It's uh, it's not. I don't, I don't say that as a bad, badge of honor, right? Like I, I invested in headshots to talk about aesthetics. I don't know a year and a half ago, and I just never regretted it for a second. Even though I could, I tend to be self conscious about my appearance. When you asked for headshots. I was able to send you a few, all right? And I knew you were someone who values uh, promo materials and a certain aesthetic and a, and a keen decision. So it just kind of took something off the table. A lot of running my podcast is about removing obstacles and excuses. So once upon a time, I almost didn't launch the podcast once I found out that there was a $7 uh, a month fee to host it. <laughs> right? I said, <laughs> I thought it was free. If it's seven a month, I'm out. And my friend looked yeah. at me like with absolute disgust. Um, so a series of pieces like that were like, well, okay, if I'm spending that much on coffee and then 
if I have the headshots and if I have the logo. And so now when I'm coaching clients and people who are launching podcasts, that's a lot of what we do. Try to remove, right? Like the old Michelangelo, uh, he's got the block of clay and you just remove it to reveal the statue of David. And, you know, uh, my podcast is far from the statue of David, but there is that part of it where I'm chopping away so that we can get to the mm. good stuff. That's a really interesting analogy. I actually love that. What was the spark that made you want to start the podcast? Like, I know you had the, the coaching part of your background, but I think there's also this jump between maybe analog and digital that a lot of people struggle with. And I know you touched on that slightly, but there's people that can do things physically, person to person, and they're great at that kind of contact, and they like to keep things in that format. And then there are some people that maybe only gravitate towards doing things online, and they wouldn't necessarily be comfortable doing things shared. And you have this balance of, okay, on one hand, you're a, you're a teacher, you're in classrooms full of people, and then you do this coaching. One form of coaching, I guess, would be coaching teams. I know you did some baseball coaching. I'm not sure if you're still doing that, but then also coaching people and coaching people on how to, how to speak and how to do other things. So what made you decide to bring that world online? I think the podcast genre was just about built for my sensibilities. Uh, I interviewed my parents with a fist. That was my microphone. And uh, maybe there was, you know, if we deep dove into psychology, maybe there was a bit of attention gathering, right? I was the oldest of three, but so I didn't really feel like I was, you know, hurting for attention. But I, I when the minute you do this in someone's face, how did you feel about that coffee? And then we'd have a <laughs> wiffle ball game at my, uh, my grandmother's house. And I would, and this is real. I mean, I would, I'd be in the game. I was pretty decent at wiffle ball, but I would run up to my aunt and I would say, you just drove in the winning run at the Klamovich family party. Talk about it. And then I would be interviewed at a local little league game after a good game. And I would find the questions good or interesting or maybe even a little trite. And then I would do that. And then my, my younger brother or sister had a penguin, which I feel like would have been a hit. This toy could be re-released. It had a recording box inside its stomach. You could unzip the penguin and it would record up to 10 seconds. So now you would, you would talk to the penguin and you would play it and the penguin would repeat back your voice. To me, like when I trace it back, that's a part of a podcast. Like you're, you're yeah. recording your thoughts and you're playing them for an audience. So, you know, when I went, when it came time to go to high school, I would do some broadcasting on a table with my friend because to impress our friends on the basketball team. College, we would do it with the women's basketball team and the radio station. Uh, and then when I found out about this idea of podcasting, the only thing I didn't like about it was the name. You know, I still don't know if it's a great name. Uh, a podcast confuses people and I feel like it separates people from two different places. Like, oh, I don't know what it is and I don't want to get into it. I just try to tell people it's a radio show on demand. And yeah. um, so, you know, those are some broad strokes that kind of give some color to to how I thought about it. And as we go on and talk, I'm happy to go in any of those nooks and crannies. Yeah, sure. I'd love to pull on some of those threads. I know something you've talked about in the past is being that people have referred to you as someone who is aggressively curious. And I think that filtered through in some of the stories that you just shared. I guess I have two questions. One, is that something that you have always found to be something that was consistent and just innate to you? And how do you think that was maybe cultivated in your upbringing? It sounds like were your parents and family quite supportive of that? Did they Was that something that was actively nurtured or was it something that you just kept putting your foot in throughout your life? Very interesting uh, to think back on that. I definitely would say I'll plead guilty to aggressively curious, but to do that, you have to go to the other side, which can be a little bit annoying, right? You can get the... It's too much now, too many questions. I don't tend to believe that, but as a parent, 
we've all been in that place where it's like, okay, like we've, we've pulled on this thread enough. Like you don't have to an, an investigate everything. But I look back and I ask my dad a ton of sports questions. You know, almost every question from my dad was either sports or food. And to these, <laughs> to this day, um, those are big threads in my life. Now it's funny. I would always ask unusual questions though. Um, I would ask my dad things like, if the guy's sliding at the second base and the tag gets applied, but then when he sweeps the tag, the ball goes flying into the outfield. But before it hits the ground, the outfielder catches it. Shouldn't he still be out at second, just like a wide receiver when they catch a ball and it gets bobbled and someone else catches it? And he would just be like, no, like he didn't have the ball. At, you know, but he would go into it. He would indulge me. And yeah. I think until he went away to work, you know, you know, for the day, he would indulge me. My mom was an expert storyteller, still is, uh, sits at the kitchen table with a coffee and entertains people really generous of spirit and of, of deed. Um, so I think that that worked well. Um, I don't ever have any memories, though. Like, I, I can't sit here and tell you, like, I remember mom and dad being like, you are curious. Keep that up. It's a good thing. <laughs> Yeah. Which sounds weird when you say it out loud, but the reality is like, I do say that explicitly to my kids now. Like we talk mm -hmm. about curiosity as a, as a vital tool and we encourage it. So I guess everything's like one generation, right? Like Gladwell wrote about like how a lot of the um, Jewish immigrants, you know, they were tailors and then their, their kids became lawyers because they saw the, the fruits of the hard work, but you could do things with your mind, et cetera, et cetera. I think that happens when we raise kids. My parents were passively encouraging the curiosity. My wife and I now are actively, and I don't know which one works better, but we're definitely doing it. Okay. I want to put a pin in the topic of the lessons that you teach to your kids, both your personal kids and also the kids in your classroom. And I want to go down the line of something you mentioned just a moment ago, which is sports. And it seems like you've always had this interest in sports. Sports has always been a part of your life, particularly baseball. And I'm really interested in that part of your life and your career as well, because from what I understand, you were, you must have been really good at baseball because you went to play D1 at at college or university. And for those that are not from the US or for people that are listening from anywhere else in the world, that is like the, the highest level of collegiate athletics or collegiate sports. Um, we don't necessarily have the same system in the UK. I don't think we take sports as seriously, but <laughs> you have like D1, D2, D3. I'm not sure what's below that, but it's hard. It's hard to play yeah, at that level. It. You're on it. <laughs> and I think you were even yeah, on I, the- I enjoyed uh, it. Like, I Oh, go on. Sorry. Please. No, I, I enjoyed it. I put a lot of time into it. I wanted to hear where you're going to go next because you may you may make me sound better. You said I was even on some kind of team. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, you were on the, was it the 96 uh, national team? I'm impressed. Yeah, national champions, American Legion. Um, we, were, we were the best team out of 5,000 or so amateur teams. Um, footnote to that was my dad was the assistant coach. So we actually have the moment on VHS where we hugged wow. at the pitcher's mount. Uh, as the announcers circled up and, and talked about it. So I spent a lot of time, David, with baseball. There was no doubt about it. I watched a lot of college football, a lot of college basketball at the time this was recorded. Um, you know, Division One has some range, just like anything else. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I played it the best of the best Division One, But um, yeah, it was, it was a big passion of mine. And I went on to coach it and uh, spent a lot of time with it. I didn't know that your dad was the coach. What did your dad teach you about coaching? Or what do you think you learned from maybe having that close relationship with your dad where you're both playing or both involved with the sport at the same time. 
One of the things I didn't mention earlier when we were talking about uh, actively or passively encouraging the curiosity is my dad is not a big talker. If you called on the phone um, to reach me during my high school years, the conversation would be my dad would pick up the phone and go, hello? No. That was the entire conversation. Like, And you don't know, you were just left like wondering what they asked. Like, yeah. can Joe come to the phone? Is he available? Are you eating dinner? My mom was the gregarious one. So um, I, I got to believe that there's a direct line between how do I get dad to talk? Well, I hit a baseball. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I, I ask him questions about, you know, what his softball days were like. I can tell you stories about his playing days, which, you know, had much more adversity than me getting cut from teams and not having the opportunity and just playing nonstop and his parents not being in any way supportive of it. You want to play baseball? Go play baseball. We're, we're going to be working. You can get there. Like, so a totally different um, piece of that. So I think, you know, that part of it is interesting. The other part that I'd want to mention is on episode 150 of 1% Better, uh, I had my dad on. And um, I think I even say it in the intro after I edit it. I say, you know, what was it like coaching your son? A lot of people say, it's incredibly difficult. And before I can get the word difficult out, he, he jumped in on the mic and said, easiest thing I've ever done. And it actually choked me up in the moment. I remember being choked up in the moment. We're sitting in my own house and I, we had these two mics set up and easiest thing. Everyone criticizes parents coaching their kids and stay away from that and the politics involved. And he went on to compliment his relationship with me. And, you know, we butted heads at times, but, you know, because he, he, would, he would look at you and even think like, I know what you're capable of because I see you every day and you're not delivering it here. So why aren't you getting those hits? And you'd be like, dad, I'm trying. Like you'd be like, oh. but it was never anything like you read in the, in the stories and the movies. We, I mean, it really solidified our relationship. You know, that's the cleanest way I could put it. I mean, that was our bond. Everyone tries to find a bond over whatever it is. And, and that with some great family dinners was, was our bond. That's amazing. And do you think that was maybe one of the spots that led you to coaching for yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you see, we would have, the, you know, and, and there's an interesting line that almost sounds like I'm making it up, but like, there's an interesting line towards conversation, right? Like, yeah. we would then have a discussion about the game. And I would say, well, why do you think coach did that? And he would say, well, what do you think if he would have done this? Or a lot of times my dad was the assistant coach, right? So he, he kind of was in an interesting role where we could kind of observe and then he would do all-star teams and then we'd have a little more insight. I was like that too, because I would know ahead of time the starting lineup. And I was good enough to where it wasn't like one of those awkward, like Joe's playing because he's Joe's son, you know? So yeah. it was like, we had that safety net, but then it would be cool. Cause he would be like, I'm going to probably start Jason tomorrow. Don't say anything. And I would have like that insight, right? Which is like no confidentiality agreement sign, just kind of like, oh, okay. And then I could be like, well, it's interesting, dad. It's none of my business, but are you thinking about playing him in left field or right field? And a lot of the cyclical nature was really appealing to me. Play the game, talk about the game. Game tomorrow, what about the travel? Oh, we're going there? There's a great deli on the way there. Like It all kind of wrapped together for us, and it made, a, it made it beautiful. Now, right now, my son's not very into sports, but we still try to find those bonds through the food, and he picked up rec basketball, um, and I think that that's been something really cool. Even though he's not incredibly skilled at it, he's loving it, and it's just providing those same type of things. Like just this week, out there dribbling the basketball with them. It's a great, I mean, I, I guess I never realized this as a parent. It's just a great excuse to have a conversation at the end of the day. Yeah. That, that, that's a super big point that you're touching on because that links to 
one of the the main talking points that you have and one of the things that you spend a lot of your creative time on, which is about one, having great conversations and also two, asking great questions. And I'm really interested in the connection between coaching and sports and also asking questions because I think they are incredibly interlinked and maybe in some ways it's quite natural that you came to the position that you are because maybe you can speak more to this but what do you think is the importance of being able to ask good questions within the realm of sports and within the realm of coaching well first it starts with asking bad questions i think i think you know if you're not comfortable if someone's listening is not comfortable asking good questions or that paralyzes them just like good writing starts with bad first drafts i think it's very powerful to just free yourself up and say I don't ask a lot of questions. Let me ask two more questions a day and start really basic. Now, someone listening to your show might be a little bit more curious than the average person might be uh, asking a lot of questions. Then I find that that improving the quality of the questions matters a great deal. If we think about that in two places, one is on a podcast and one is um, in sports. I think the difference between a good question and a bad question can be the difference between the pupil or the listener uh, learning something life changing. I really do. I mean, I think on the on the pitch or on the field, it's these quick hitting questions, but they have to be clear. See, there's no time for confusion, right? You're in the middle of a live game. Think of basketball or, or soccer. Um, I think you get into a situation, or I should say football in this case, but um, you get into a situation where you don't have time. It's fluid. It's moving. So you can't, you can't ask a long and windy, low-velocity question. You got to ask something pointed and quick. You got to get information. You hopefully want something that's more than yes or no. And I think that that can unlock something for an athlete really quickly. On a podcast conversation, it's tricky. I've been studying it for a long time now. And, you know, if I look at uh, hosts, oftentimes they will ask uh, questions that begin with the word do, D-O. They will give multiple choice questions, which I don't favor in general. But I think a lot of us are getting false information, right? Because someone as seasoned as you and hopefully as me, we can run with any question. Right. If you say to me, do you like coaching or playing better? You've given me two choices and you've really given me a close and close answer. But listeners can already tell I'm not going to just give you an, a one word answer. We're, we're seasoned enough in the media to know what you're getting at. But what I would argue for people that aren't on podcasts or that are just getting started on podcasts, just really workshopping questions like that, not to paralyze someone and say, oh, my God, if I don't ask the right eight words. But just to open it up, like you do so beautifully, what is it that you love about or draw a line between or connect the dots? Like these ways that you invite, it's the best verb I could use, you invite your guest to speak. And a do and a multiple choice doesn't invite it. Now, there are times for that in sports, right? Hey, do you like it better left or right? Left, go. But for the most part, we're trying to invite and draw out and uncover some insight from people. And it's one of the reasons I've really been loving your show. Oh, thank you. And you've had you've had a lot of experience with podcasting, with speaking, with running 1% Better, which is the podcast that you're a host of. And I think you also host a, a baseball podcast. I don't know if that's a constant thing or an occasional thing. I did. Thing. Yeah, that's that's we, we paused that, okay. but we did uh, 85 to 95 episodes, a co-host that was called KWB Radio. So if people wanted to do a deep dive, it's still out there. Yeah. But in total, that is a huge number of podcast episodes. Obviously, there's a lot that you've learned and you talk a lot about the things that you've learned and we can get into that. But I'm perhaps interested to know something that you may have learned that was unexpected or unconventional. Is there something that you learned through the experience of just so many reps that was perhaps 
counterintuitive or that was genuinely new to you at the time that you discovered it? I think there's a bunch that, that, that start bubbling up. Some short strokes would be like, you think that because you have a quote unquote famous person on the show, the show's viral the next day. You know, you get James <laughs> Clear, you're yeah. on episode 62. Now I'm famous. Nope. Um, you get invited to a speaking engagement five episodes in. I'm a public speaker for life. Here comes every recurring income ever. Nope. Those type of things, they don't happen, but you realize you start it for a different reason. You didn't start it to, to be famous, to have 10 million downloads, something like that. So that's one like big meta thing. Um, I think it's probably been done before and shared before, but it's worth repeating. You cannot wait for the perfect time. You know, Seth Godin yep. will say, ship it. Others will say, build in public. Some will say, start before you're ready. It just could not be more true. I mean, someone's listening to this right now and they're going, I know I want to start something, but I don't, I got to wait until, no, no, no. You have to start because if you don't start, it's just harder and harder and harder and harder to do. So I think that lesson um, is worth uh, underlining. And I think maybe a final one that I'll share. I don't know if I anticipated the direct and quick implementation of the ideas I get. So if I learn something on a podcast, I'm putting it into my classroom tomorrow, if appropriate. I'm not waiting till next school year. If I learn something on a podcast, a little while ago, I shared with you an example of that do and either or question. I heard that last week while I was studying uh, a podcast, interviewing people about interviewing. And I immediately share that with you. I don't wait and I don't put it into a journal that I go back to in three years. So I think I underestimated the immediacy it would have, at least from my learning style or my preferred way of learning, that I could just make it so much more practical. So as if, if only 10 people listen to the show, because of the way it resonates with me, the audio medium, it just has an incredible exponential factor for me to do. Um, so, so that I think I maybe underestimated when we first started. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it touches on something I think you've mentioned in the past, and it's definitely intuitive. Well, not intuitive, but it definitely means something to me, which is I think you shared some advice that you got, which is essentially that reading without action is useless. And that resonates with me so much uh, because, so for example, what you were just saying made, made me think about, so I read a lot, but I think what makes my reading useful is the fact that I also write. And I write, I force myself to write every day and also every week. I share writing every week and I write for myself every day. And that is almost the crucible for thinking. And that helps me to think better and improves my thinking. I'm, and I'm sure for you in a similar way, having this podcast that you've been running for years and years now, where you're having these conversations every week, one, it's almost like a, there's a velocity from being on this treadmill where you're having these engaging conversations, conversation after conversation with really interesting people. You're picking up things, you're putting out things into the next conversation. And then you also have these other avenues that you can share. So one is within your podcast, but then also with your class and, and your kids at home. And there's all these other avenues that you can use to um, put out some of what you're learning and maybe also get feedback because I'm sure that you're going to get some interesting responses about how people respond and interact with the things that you're sharing. Oh yeah. And it's reading without action is, is useless is uh, you did some beautiful digging there to get that one. That was, that was like the ultimate last line from a, a mentor. I kept asking him questions about launching the podcast and I said, can you give me a book recommendation? And he said, sure, I'll give you one more, but then reading without action. Now, for people who immediately hear that and go, oh, I don't like that. I, reading is its own reward. I'll just offer this. We can define action a little differently, right? I mean, um, in a recent episode, I, I had a, 
I was discussing uh, someone I found in my life that I'm calling a reverse mentor, someone who's much younger than me, much less experienced than me, but teaching me incredible amounts about teaching. And I sought her out. Well, we had just this, this like nerd chat the other day where we were talking about creation is supposed to be the highest form of like creativity or learning. Like kids are taking in content and then ultimately create their own is supposed to be the best. But she had posited that potentially uh, intentional and thoughtful consumption would be higher than mindless creation. So if you're going to put out a podcast with no effort, no aesthetic, no whatever, it'd be interesting to know like that might not be as valuable as really thoughtful reading with notes and then ability to put it into a conversation. The podcast is a bad example in the scenario because I just think it has its own rewards. But potentially, you know, certain type of creative work would not be as valuable as consumption, but ultimately doing something with the reading, right? Even in a basic lesson in an English class, let's read it and let's do something with it. Like that's a good framework for a lesson. Like hey, give them something provocative to read and think about. And now let's do something that demonstrates our thinking. So I'm definitely tracking with what you're saying there. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that the podcast is a bad example of that, um, you know, following from what you were saying is the fact that it's a conversation. And I think that is almost the perfect format by which you can practice ideas and digest ideas because you can share them. And I think there's something unique in that exchange with another person that develops your thinking, that maybe conflicts with what you're thinking, that really challenges you to think in different ways. And you share so much about, you know, having damn good conversations, having great conversations. And without narrowing you down too much, I'm, I want to ask just on a very basic level, because I think some people can hear that and not understand the the value there and not understand the promise of what it is that you are trying to get to. So what in your mind is the destination of that? Like, what do you actually get out of having great conversations? What changes there? What's the, the transformation that happens when you go from just passively having the normal conversations that you have day to day, going about your life, speaking to people and maybe intentionally putting some of these tools that you talk about into practice and we can get into what those are. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like when to use James clear again, as an example, when he talked about atomic habits, that word atomic comes to my mind now, like I'll be fundamentally changed after this very conversation because you and I will now have a, a friendship of sorts and certainly a professional respect. And I'll be tracking your work and you'll be tracking mine a little bit. And inevitably someone will be so kind to email me that they heard it on this podcast. So now just from a molecular level, things have changed uh, as a major tool of great conversations. Um, I just think when you ask better questions, you have better conversations, which is simplistic and true, but it also gives you the ability to be about three inches taller. I think you walk through life with almost like, you know, I, I joke with my students, you know, I'll make up a name, uh, Mr. Adams, you know, you don't want, you don't want to fight Mr. Adams. And they're like, why would I want to fight Mr. Adams? Like I'm saying you don't want to fight him. And you have an idea why they're like, he's strong. I'm like, no, he's strong. Fine. But like, he knows about four or five different martial art. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah. Like you don't want to fight someone who has all of those tools in the bag. Like if you are just a puncher, great. If you're a kicker, great. But if you can do Krav Maga and other things I can't pronounce, it's probably not a great matchup. And I think if you are versed in the skills of conversation and question asking, you just kind of walk through life that way. You're just like, well, even if you, you take Larry King's um, perspective, he, he used to say, like I heard this morning, he said, 
I tried to ask dumb questions, questions that weren't from an intellectual standpoint, just why'd you do that? Tell me about that. And even that, I think his style allowed him to be able to interact with Frank Sinatra and Jackie Gleason and Jackie Robinson and all these different people because he was curious, because he was able to ask questions, because he was versed in conversation. So those are two ways that it that it really uh, works well. And then I think just connecting with another person, being present. I've often said that a lot of people want to have podcasts that feel like everyday conversations. I believe in the inverse. I believe putting these on and using this quite literally lifts the conversation. And I want more everyday conversations to feel like podcasts a slightly heightened form of reality. And in practice, what does that look like? Does that sound, in my mind, maybe that's sounding a bit like closer this. to it sounds like Socratic this. debates. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it, yeah. it sounds like this, man. It sounds like a curious um, you know, human being inviting me, um, showing super amounts of respect that I just feel really touched by and just the ability to go anywhere, right? So if I pause now, and let you pick up, you pick up, right? It's not a ping pong match. You just, you know, I kind of cut you off with a compliment there, but you know, that's what it sounds like, right? This give and take. And, and, and what, you know, what I like to underline for people is if we do this conversation tomorrow, it may be better, it may be worse, but it will most certainly be different. We will not be able to recalibrate this. You could send me a transcript of this conversation. We won't be able to recreate it. And I love that about conversations. I agree. And I think you touched on something important, which is that I think not enough people sp spend enough time being curious about the people that they are around and the people they interact with. And it's so interesting, to be honest, it's not that I want to have a conversation all the time. I'm even thinking about sometimes you get into the back of an Uber and you're tired and it's 10.30 at night and you just want to get home. Okay, fine. That's okay. But simultaneously, some of the best conversations I've had have been with people that I've never seen again. I'm thinking of, I, w I was in Bosnia and actually, okay, two conversations. Um, last year, I was traveling around the Balkans for a little bit. And at one point I was in Bosnia. I spoke to the guy that was a, a taxi driver that was driving me to the airport. And then another time I was in um, North Macedonia and there was a guy that was driving me from, from the airport to my Airbnb. And both of those conversations were so interesting because in that alone. I learned more than all the research that I'd done before the trip about the politics of the country and what's going on and how people think. And you learn things that are so different and, and really counteract some of your preconceptions about what, li what life might be like and what different people think. And as, as an example, and I know I'm going on a bit here, but as an example, so the UK was previously part of the EU and we had this whole Brexit thing about wanting to leave the EU and sovereignty and this and that. And typically we think of the free movement within the EU as a good thing. And I think it is. But usually we're thinking of that because we are the highly mobile people that get to travel and we are the ones that get to move and we're the ones that get to go around and go to all these different countries and then we can come home and it's fun and we can do that. Um, but hearing the perspective from some other people, for example, so he was talking about uh, North Macedonia joining the EU. North Macedonia used to be called Macedonia and somehow by joining the EU, they had to change the name of the country and they had to change a bunch of things. And then all the smart people left because now they have free movement and they can go to any other country in the EU. And if your country is not as well developed, you don't have all the resources, why won't you go somewhere else? And so you have a bit of a brain drain, you have a new name, you have all of these things, and you also have to pay to be part of the EU. So it was just really eye-opening to 
in in the span of maybe like 10 minutes, a really short drive, just having this enlightening moment where I'm learning an entirely different perspective about something that I might have previously thought was just basic, you know, why wouldn't it be good to just be able to move freely between countries? It's perfect. I mean, first of all, the cab driver, the Uber driver example works really well because one of the things I do when I work with a client right away is I have them do a little bit of a self-examination, a little reflection, maybe even a, an audit on how they ask questions. Like, like when you show up in the world, like what is your question? Like the second part is the framework of what's your philosophy. But the first part is like, do you ask a lot of questions? Just basically, do you ask a lot of questions or do you prefer not to? Once you start there, think about the, the cab driver, right? Like if you're not going to engage, then don't engage. You know, put your headphones on and and don't engage. But if you are going to engage, ask the questions from a place of curiosity. Really listen, which is the, the crucial part to any conversation. And then begin to slowly over time ask better and better, more clear, more fresh, more unique questions. And then you see that you open up a world of information like you just got. Now, for someone who says, I want to be better at asking questions, a great place to start is to say, what do you do typically in the back of a cab? Well, I'm, I'm tired and I don't want to engage. Okay, so when do you engage? Well, I don't really like not with strangers. And then all of a sudden we start to uncover some patterns. The person that we're painting here in this picture doesn't like to ask a lot of questions to people that they don't know. I understand that, but there's a direct link with curiosity there, right? Now, you'd have to find the curiosity somewhere, I hope but you're really demonstrating this mythical avatar that we're creating. They're demonstrating someone that doesn't ask a lot of questions. And, you know, one final point on that is I always like to give a, a practical example. If you're in an Uber going to a, a new city and you're looking for a great place to eat, you can say, hey, what's a good restaurant around here? And the, the cab driver will tell you probably something that every other tourist has been told, right? You'll get the exact same answer, probably out of a grab bag of three things. And you move on with your day and you don't even realize you're none the wiser. But the thing is, if you would have just asked the question a little differently, if you would have said, what's a great restaurant around here that no one knows about? You're eating at the greatest place. What's one that's not a tourist trap? What's one that you never tell people because you, you, you don't want it to get too crowded? The person's not going to say, oh, I can't tell you that. They're going to say, actually, it's Mama Yolanda's down the street. And all of a sudden now you've transformed, quite literally, you've transformed your experience because your question was better. That's one of the main like stakes in the ground that I put in. And I say, if you ask a better question, you will have a better experience. And it's just an incredible, it's an incredible way, David, to walk through life, knowing you can curate your own experience through words. Like it's, it's wild at times. Absolutely. And it's one of those surprising things that I think people take for granted. And it's a combination of, it's one, it's the asking of the questions. And two is maybe just engaging in conversations. And three, I think it's just genuinely being curious about people and being interested in people. And one thing that I found, so I remember, so I used to work in corporate law and in the, there's a coffee place downstairs at the bottom of our building. And I almost never paid for a coffee there because there's this guy that I would just ask about his life and his family. And, and not because I wanted free coffee, but because I was interested. And it's so interesting how you can start to build some of these relationships just very nonchalantly. And other people will be like, whoa, how do you get this free stuff? Or how does this happen? Or, or what's going on? And it, it's almost nothing. Like in, in some ways, it's it's nothing that you're trying to do. It's just by being curious. It's just by asking questions. So one question that I did have for you is you've had lots of reps of asking questions. I think one thing that is really interesting and unique about having a podcast is that you have almost a special window 
into <laughs> the life of someone else that you are able to there is a a premise of vulnerability that you're hopefully expecting that okay we are both here we are both going to engage in this conversation you're going to listen to me i'm going to listen to you and hopefully you'll answer some of my questions to the best of your ability and i know that you've had that opportunity with loads of amazing people and loads of people from different walks of life and people that might be great coaches or great leaders or uh, great thinkers in in different ways and i'm interested to know what would you say is the the best question that you've asked wait a minute you threw in you've threw in three words at the end which i think illustrates a really powerful concept you said what do you think is the best question because I've worked really diligently on my listening skills, and it is a skill, it's not a gift, I learned a concept of listening through the period. So I think that's Oscar Trimboli who says that. And if I would have just jumped in, what is the best question you ask? What is the best question? I would have had a different answer for you. But then when you say, what's the best question you've asked, now I'm starting to think about it, the question in a different way. So let me pause for a second, and, and I know you know what I'm saying. Which one are you more interested in? I mean, usually people say both, but I'm curious of what you mean by that because I will answer differently. I think I'm interested in the letter. Well, that's that would be will, will you marry me? Will you marry <laughs> me to Dana? That's that's the one I'm okay. going to go with. But go ahead and finish your your color there, and I'll 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 jump back in. I think maybe that's a great answer. <laughs> I can tell you what I was <laughs> thinking when I was asking the question is because, like I mentioned, I think when you're on a podcast, you're, you're asking people questions. You don't want to ask boring questions. You don't want to ask the questions that people get asked all the time. I think you want to learn something new, not just for yourself, but also for the listeners. And you're trying to draw something out. And I think you ask good questions. Obviously, you know how to ask good questions because it's what you teach people. But I'm interested to know, is, has there been a time that you asked a question that you drew something out that you don't think you would have got otherwise? If you hadn't asked such a good question, if you hadn't phrased it in a unique way or asked it at the right time or in the right place or whatever the circumstances were yeah. around. Yeah. Two come right to mind. Um, Roy Firestone used to host a show on ESPN uh, called Up Close. He actually later got featured in the movie Jerry Maguire. He was the one who Cuba Gooding Jr. would say, you're not going to make me cry, Roy. And he was known as one of the greatest interviewers in the world. And, and I interviewed him um, from my childhood home where I used to watch the show with my dad. And uh, at one point during the conversation, I said to him, I noticed you interviewed Ansel Adams. An Ansel Adams is one of the, is best known for people my age for having those black and white photos that everyone would put in their college dorm room. But I didn't realize until I prepared for the show, Roy, that Ansel Adams had this, this, and this going on. And he goes, whoa, I mean, I don't know where you found that. But I, I was actually the last person to interview Ansel Adams while he was alive. I was known for interviewing sports players, but you, you must have done your homework. And like it immediately gave some kind of credibility. And I think that that was something that we've you know developed a bit of a relationship from. The other one is the first question I asked Laura Gassner-Odding. She goes by Hey LGO on Twitter. Um, I went through her Instagram and found that she had a picture of uh, a turkey heart. Like it was her speaking. It was like her with her children, her in Fort Lauderdale, and then a turkey heart just sitting there on her Instagram feed. So when I was preparing for this show and she she was on a book tour, she just got out of Good Morning America. I opened up with, you know, LGO and preparing for a talk today. I have a million different directions I want to go in. But first things first, why is your eighth picture on your Instagram uh, of a turkey heart on a plate? The reason why that brings me such a delight, and I don't think I, well, I know I didn't plan it, 
She has brought up Turkey Heart in hashtags. She has brought it up on Clubhouse Rooms. She has brought it up in our personal conversations. She's going to speak to my coaching cohort because I asked her that question, David. She literally brings it up and says, out of 150 interviews she went on, I was one of the top five that she ever went on. And I'm only saying the numbers because it's such a high compliment. Like I'm not trying to brag about it, but to give color to your question, because I asked something weird that is going to reveal something about her, and actually Firestone said that to me, he goes, a great question reveals something from a person. Um, I, I was able to, in a non-gimmicky way, you know, there's the thread that connects the two things, right? There's, there's credibility, curiosity, and just a touch of novelty in those two questions. And uh, they, I, I hope if I'm doing it right, I do that often. But that's two examples of, I think, what has separated my work to some degree. Sure. I'd love to take a step back and thinking about, again, one, your podcast. And you mentioned before, you know, you've had some incredible people. You've spoken with Chris Voss and Daniel Pink and James Clear and Seth Godin. But I'm really interested that some of them you had very early on. And I don't know the extent to which this ties in with asking good questions. But what is it that you, what were you asking those people that you were able to get some of those great guests early on? And I guess maybe a precursor question to that, which um, might be more important is at the time that they came on, was it, was that the right time for you? Do you think that this was how it should be? Or was this something that you were intentionally going out and trying to get some great speakers early on? Let's, let's introduce a little bit of serendipity here, like the, 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 the jukebox effect. So I'll give you the Seth Godin story or the Daniel Pink story, because I want to respect your time and your listeners. You get one or the other. Which one do you want? They're both dynamite, I promise. Okay. Let's go with the Daniel Pink story. Daniel Pink said yes to me to be on a podcast because years before I had a podcast, when I found out about his um, autonomy, mastery, and purpose theory of motivation, I emailed him. I did not have a podcast. I didn't have any intentions of having a podcast, but I was very curious about what motivates students and particularly student athletes. I had a particular player in my team who would not dive for the ball. He would not run hard through first base. And one day I went downstairs into the gymnasium and there was this um, recreational volleyball tournament going on. He dove into the stands to to try to save a ball. Like he literally risked wrist breaking, diving into the stands. The way I remember it, I ran upstairs to my classroom and emailed Daniel Pink. And I was like, Daniel, I have a serious question about motivation. And I painted a picture of this volleyball tournament that our phys ed teachers run every year. And it's, they're still running it 18 years later. And I said, Daniel, why is it that some people care more about a, a recreational volleyball tournament than they do my JV baseball team or my class or probably his girlfriend? Like, why does he care that much? And his answer was, actually, I have no idea. But if it's okay with you, I'll post it on my blog and I'll let my smart readers have at it. Now, I know you're a writer and I'm sure you get a lot of comments on your blogs and your newsletters. But when I see two or three comments, I consider it a success in, in the blog world. Daniel, to this day, if listeners Google Daniel Pink Volleyball Tournament, you can throw my name in if you want. 
the first Google search that comes up is this blog that says Joe F is a high school teacher in, in New York. And 52 people commented on this question. And when I say commented, I don't mean YouTube like absurd little comment. I'm talking paragraphs <laughs> citing like Viktor Frankl. Like, like this is the theory that Piaget said this in 1875. Like, in, I've still never seen a blog post that has ever gotten this much traction. I'm sure it exists. So that little anecdote is, is all to get to this point. When it was time to launch a podcast, what did I do? I went back to the same email. I said, Daniel, I don't know if you'll remember me, but I was the lunatic from New York who asked you about the volleyball tournament. And I linked to the blog and I said, I'm launching a podcast and boy, would it be great if I could have a half hour of your time. And I, it immediately separated me from, I mean, is it unrealistic to say thousands and thousands of podcast hosts that probably do the same thing in email? And it was really, really powerful. Wow. And do you think that you intentionally go out to create a lot of these serendipitous relationships? Or was this yes. a... Absolutely. Okay. We must. We must. We must. We must. We must. In our second conversation someday, we'll talk about the Seth Godin story, which was similar. But we don't have to have a podcast. 90% of the people listening to this show might never have a podcast. But boy, could they have an amazing conversation at the deli afterwards. And maybe, you know, they just like me, they can be thinking about this conversation they had on a plane once upon a time 25 years ago with a geneticist who talked about early efforts to, to select the gender or sex of our child and still think about that. And the, the conversation I had at my favorite restaurant, the exclusive restaurant, I, the bartender who waited on everyone. I mean, our lives can be completely altered by one question. Like, I think that's actually something someone smarter than me has to have researched that. But I believe that in my bones. If you don't want to believe it, fine. At least believe that your day can be altered by a question. At least believe that your moment can be altered by a question. It could be as I tongue-in-cheekly said, you know, hey, would you marry me to, to Dana? It was the best question I ever asked. But the reality is, like, if I just don't ask that question, like, where am I? Like, it's a whole different life. And that may be a big example, but I think on the micro level, yes, you said it best. Create those serendipitous moments yourself. Create your luck. Put yourself, who said it, in these... um in these places for like positive collisions. I don't know. I wish I had the actual line. It was so beautiful, but where you can collide with creative people. I absolutely agree with that. I think I heard another great quote, which is essentially about expanding the surface area of your luck. And the more you essentially, the more you spread yourself out there, the more that you create these touch points, the more you have opportunities to interact with people. And the more you have things that you may not have planned or thought of in advance, but I think the more you interact with people, which goes back to what we were saying about being curious about people and, and being interested, but the more that you interact, the more that you touch people's lives in, in various ways without necessarily at the time expecting anything in return, the more you just leave room for serendipity to flourish, particularly because life is so long. And I think that's one of the things that we frequently underestimate is the fact that there are people that you encounter five years, 10 years, 15 years down the line that you've met before at some place at some time or you've encountered or you've interacted with in some way. Mm, I mean, expand the surface area of your luck. I mean, that was worth the conversation right there. I mean, that is beautiful. I don't know <laughs> if you don't tell me otherwise, I'm giving you credit for that one. I might take it. I can't remember where I... It's so gorgeous. I mean, that's, that is like visual 
and clear and visceral. Yeah, that's just a beautiful line. I'd love to know, this is now going towards your career. A genuine question, like why are you still teaching? You have been an educator. And let me, let me couch this question. You've been an educator for about 23 years. And I know that there are, you know, there's, there's people that go into a career and after three years, they know it's not for them. And there's people that go into a career and after 10 years, they loved it and they think, okay, now it's time to move on. Now it's time for something different. But you have been doing this for over 20 years. And so either, you know, it's, I think when I think of people just in general, not towards you, but in general, people that have been doing something for decades and decades, it's like either they're they're bored, they're stuck, or they found something magical. And so I want to know for you, like, what is it about teaching and about doing what you do that makes you continue? I want to honor the first thought I had and then give it some context, which is because I haven't solved it yet. That that makes it sound oversimplification and, and, and more about me than I want it to. But the reality is we can go on a quest to have good conversations and then you see it happening. We can go on a quest to be good at poker and you see it happening. Education and, and the systematic version of it is so complex that it's not like a Rubik's Cube. I mean, it's, it's probably 10 cubes moving at once while you're blindfolded, right? So I think... Um, there's just more impact to make. I want to discover more efficient ways to change lives. I want to solve the the conundrum of how do we get my students to read more? Um, how can I get them to be as curious as our heroes? Um, that's what I mean by haven't solved it yet. There's just so much more to do. Um, and I do think that at the end of my career, I can't even imagine a scenario where I would look back and say I solved it. So that's a little bit of something I'm going to have to reckon with in, in a decade. Um, but but I, I think that there's just more to do. That might have been the more elegant way to say it, but there's just more to do. And in all of that time, what have you learned? What's changed? What's different? Because, again, you probably taught hundreds of kids in that time. And I can imagine your approach and the way that you think and the way that you teach has evolved over time. And you've learned from maybe, because I think the other part is you've probably had the time to see the long-term effects and the results of your teaching. Because you're with these people for what seems to be a moment in time over the course of their lives. And you probably get to see where some of your students go and you see what they go on to do. And I think I uh, remember at some point you mentioned, not today, but in a previous podcast about how you had like one more English lesson and you got a bunch of people to come back and you had like 60 people in a room. So uh, yeah, I'd love to know what has changed in your mindset and your approach through your career. The uh, it's very generous question just recently, um, um, uh, a former student reached out and messaged me and said, I'm graduating this week with a degree in creative writing and music production. And I just wanted to keep you updated and thank you. Um, without you, I wouldn't have gone into the creative field. I was going to go in a different mm -hmm. direction. And I, you know, people hearing that can, can definitely take that as the teacher cliche, but I would ask you not to for a moment, maybe suspend that for a second and think about how, much responsibility is buried in that line. I mean, I, I genuinely wrote back like, congratulations, that's so touching. Are you happy with the choice you made? I asked her that because when I hear that from her, I mean, I literally, she's, she's claiming I literally changed the direction of her life with my words, with my behavior. So when I hear that, that's heavy, you know, and it's like, 
you you know that's why I don't want people to think it's a cliche. Like that's a heavy privilege to to have, right? To know that what I will say could potentially come back to me, and you know <laughs> you got to be careful. And you know you say three thousand words a day. I want to get the actual number to be a little less sloppy. How many words a day a teacher says? But if you say the wrong seven, you know you you have ruined someone's day and potentially their life to to not be over grandiose. So that's something that I think sets the stage for for your question. As far as what's changed, tough question to answer because part of me wants to say kids are the same and that old Socrates quote where it's like these kids today, they're spoiled and you you know, you reveal at the end it's Socrates. People think it's like a 1980s quote, but it's actually like (laughs) 500 years before Jesus was born. And yeah. But I, I do think kids have changed. I really, they, they, the phone fundamentally changes them. I, I will argue that. I mean, it's just, this phone is so powerful. I mean, it's, a, it's an extension of what we're doing here. If we have access to this, how could the kids not be different? Um, we just did a little mini unit on the content diet, what, they're, what they consume and how mindful is it and how often our materials challenging to them. And I can go on and on. But um, I, I just think, What's changed without oversimplifying it is the the distractions we have to wade through can be total distractions or they can be tools to try to get them in. And if we do not adapt, we are dead. I mean, there is no possible way, no teacher today and probably ever, but certainly now, no teacher can get by without adapting. You know, you you know, the old expression, like, I think it's John Wooden who said, like, you know, if they're not learning the way you teach, you got to teach the way they learn. And that that it continues to be incredibly uh, valuable and necessary in my profession in 2022. And I think the best teachers are doing that. And I think the ones that get burnout aren't. What would you say is the highest leverage thing that you teach? And this can be across all the formats in which you teach, because you teach kids at school, you teach and coach people. And then you also, and I, I think you have a, a, a program that you're now running, like a, not a course, but you know, almost like a mastermind group with eight people that you have. And then you also, you teach your kids at home across all of those spheres. What's probably the highest leverage thing that you. Well, I'm beginning to think it's the, it's the, it's the paid coaching cohort because we just launched the first one in March and it's exceeded my expectations in every single way. Like I thought I was going to be Joe, the trainer. And a lot of me is Joe, the facilitator and Joe, the connector. Right. I thought like, the the power of the people in the room, I thought that was like a cliche. Like I thought it was like, oh no, like you still have to have a dynamic leader. No, no, it, it really is like the eight people and who they know and the surface area of creativity bumping up on, on purpose. So there's no doubt I'm doing a second cohort in October. Reason I mentioned that is because that kind of shows all the skills, the public speaking, the creativity, the building public, the support, the feedback loop. On a very practical level, aside from that, it's public speaking. You know, I, I, in, in the reverse mentor conversations I have, I say, I need to get my English 12 class cranking. Like I have my public speaking class and I don't know if it's ever possible and not for the reasons people think what people think, well, public speaking is an elective. They want to be there. Yeah. But like a lot of times guidance just says like, Mr. Ferraro is a nice guy. Like you have a hole in period five, like just go to that. That's not, it's not, I don't buy the notion that they're like, I'm dying to do public speaking. But what it is, I've found, David, is this, right? This is public speaking, and we can lie to people and say we edit this health, uh, heavily. The reality is you're going to do very little edits on this. It's going to be super organic, and you're going to hear the ums and the mic tips and all that stuff. But in public speaking, it's the feedback loop. There's nothing like it. You give the speech. 
while it's happening, you know if you're landing. Like I know I'll drive home today being like, I really like that. David brought out the best in me. I like this. Public speaking is that way, right? So if we can figure out a way to articulate our, articulate our ideas more clearly and to get that feedback from a group of enrolled people, oh, I mean, it's, it's just incredible. Yeah. And I know what you said just reminded me of uh, Seth Godin. He also talks about when he does public speaking, he is communicating emotion, even with his slides, whether, whether it's his slides, whether it's what he's saying, it's about communicating emotion and then feeding back off the emotion that's bouncing back from the audience. So he doesn't like doing virtual talks. He doesn't like doing anything else on, or at least unless he can see the people and he can see the reactions and he can feel the emotion. And it's this tangible, almost living thing that is between the two sides, the two groups of people, the conversation becomes its own thing. And it, it is its own organic living thing and you can feed it you feed it with what you say you feed it with your countenance the way that you send the words the way that you share things the way that you listen all of those are part of almost creating something in the moment i literally share the the exact definition you just said seth godin defines communication as the transfer of emotion like you absolutely nailed it i actually teach that to my students and i'll give you not the original Seth Godin, because I don't want to go back on my word, but a 30-second Seth Godin story that you just <laughs> brought out of me. And it'll illustrate this for people that are afraid of perfection, perfectionism. I paid money to go see Seth talk once, and he came out on stage. Everyone clapped. He brought out a mug while he was walking out the stage, and he tripped on a wire. And T went up his arm onto his sleeve as we're clapping. And he looked around, and he's like, hold on a second. Let's try that again. He leaves stage. He comes back with a different mug. Now, the fact that he had two mugs on the road trip is just absolutely <laughs> remarkable. He goes, I don't like a single thing about that other mug. This mug I like. Now, let's get going. And in that moment, I laughed. I felt more endeared to him. I said to myself, quick math. He made $30,000 for this talk. He's probably, the, anyone in the audience is probably saying, the worst thing that could happen to me is if I tripped and spilled my coffee. He didn't even flinch. He turned it into an endearing moment. He's still getting the $30,000. I'm telling the story five years later to you. Yeah. It's incredible. It was worth it. Like, I, it's better. It's better that he spilled the tea for the stories that now will live on forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like I would have fumbled that moment. That's the, uh, the calmness I need to cultivate. So I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I will probably just ask you one more question. And it's one that I had knocking about in the back of my mind, and it might be a, a random question, but I'm really interested to know just because I'm curious, as we've mentioned. But I'm interested to know, so you, like, like we talked about, you played the D1 baseball. That was your, from what I understand, your original dream. That's what you wanted to do. And then at some point you realized maybe that that dream might not come to fruition and you went into teaching and you've had this great career since where you've done a bunch of other things. You have this, the coaching program, you do other forms of coaching, you do other forms of teaching, you have your podcast, you have all of these other things. I'm really interested to know what is the, the road less traveled by to, to pass the, the quote from the poem by Robert Frost. What, like if, if you could go back in a time machine and you already know the outcomes of the decisions that led you to this moment, 
And you could always find your way back to this moment if you chose to. So you don't have to forgo this life. You can always find your way back here. But you could pick any of the other doors that you didn't take. You could turn left at any point. Where would you turn left? What would you explore that you haven't or haven't been able to? Well, first of all, you just unlocked in me a really good heuristic, which was when you said this is the last question, I actually felt like, oh, man, that was all right. It's over already. Like, so that's my new definition that you've given me today, which is like, how do you know it's a damn good conversation? It's when the, the host says, <laughs> I only have one more question. And it's kind of the same feeling I get when it's the last Cadbury mini egg in the bag. I just, oh, my God, are you sure there's not one more in there? Like, okay. Um, so let's just acknowledge that. Thank you so much for a beautiful conversation. Um, it's weird because I've never been asked this question before. And as you were talking, I'm thinking, well, the answer is going to be go and be a major league baseball player because they get $150 a day meal money and they never pay for a meal anyway. They play in front of their fans. They travel, they make an impact, they produce entertainment and engagement. Um, so I want to say that, but there's something in me that doesn't feel that way right now. So it's hard to answer the question because I don't have any interest in playing baseball right now. So I look back and I say that was all I wanted to do. So the best blend of that would have been, I'll answer the question by saying probably a division one or division three with a really winning tradition baseball coach, which I did do for five years at a small division three school. But what they get to do is they get to set their core values. They get to recruit the student athletes that are on their team. They get to set the culture. They get to continue lifelong learning by speaking at clinics and attending clinics and taking notes. They get to impact people. So that will be my answer because the playing is out of me. I don't have any interest. But all of the other things that the head coach of the college team gets to do are things that directly align with what I'm doing now with a sprinkle of competitiveness that I've, I'm not going to say lost, but it's a little bit dormant in me, right? I don't, I wouldn't, you'll never hear me say like, I want to have more downloads than Tim Ferriss. You might hear me in, in an honest moment say, some of us should have more downloads than other people, but you won't hear me say, I, I, I need to, I need that. I think the college coaching scratches all those itches. I think that's a fantastic answer. And it's, uh, I love that it's different Thanks. from the two polar things that you could have said. And I love that it's genuine and unique and in the moment. So thank you very much for coming and making the time and answering my questions and my pestering about all the different aspects of your life. And I know that there's so much that we didn't cover and there's so many, I, I genuinely, I could have asked you so many more questions. Even as you were answering that last question, I was really struggling with whether I wanted to push it and say, oh, but can I ask you one more question? <laughs> but I guess I'll just have to have you come back if you're if you're open to it. That's that That's a yes. Uh, I know it's weird to say I'll be back when you haven't even published this one yet, but truly, truly a pleasure. Like, I, I just love it. Let me ask you this question as we close. What's something I can do to in my network? Like, I want to introduce people to your work. What would you want me to introduce of yours? Like what's, Hey, I had this amazing conversation with David. What could I turn key and say, he's really known for this besides the podcast, which I'm definitely going to share. Is there anything that I could really say, I'd love you to meet David. He does this. 
I would probably say my writing, just because it's the one thing that I've been doing since I was five and I've never gotten tired of and I've always enjoyed. And it's amazing that I have a platform to be able to share it. And I love doing it. And I write probably in some ways more than I should because it increases the expectation that I'll continue to write and I need to like spend all this time finding new things to write. But it's the one thing I love. And I think a lot of people find some value in it. Well, make sure I'm signed up. I tried to sign up the other day and I remember I got like a, I, I something glitched on my internet. It said you're in, but just make sure. Cause I don't, I, I don't want a million newsletters, but I want yours and I, and I want to make sure that I get that. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much, Joe. My pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast and follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.